This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. My name's Clay Wirestone. In today's show, we talk about Hillary Clinton at SNHU, all of the Democrats at the Jefferson-Jackson party dinner. We take on the Republicans in the person of Donald Trump in Waterville Valley, and Chris Christie newly endorsed by the union leader. I'd like to welcome John Van Fleet, who I once introduced as our political editor, but today for the first time I'm going to introduce as our managing editor. So hello, John. Oh, hello, Clay. And by the way, I, I think I have some breaking news. And that is? I just heard that during her visit to New England, New Hampshire, Hillary Clinton stopped by to see Rob Gronkowski touched his leg and magically he's going to play for the Patriots this weekend. So you're saying that the Democratic frontrunner also might have healing powers. I believe so. That's that's the news of the <laughs> You day. heard it from our managing editor first. Let's be clear that as the reporter covering Clinton's campaign, I cannot confirm that. <laughs> so, and that other voice you hear along with me is Megan Doyle, one of our erstwhile reporters here at the Monitor. Hi, Megan. Hi. <laughs> so... So with that dubious news in mind, uh, let's start off. Uh, on Thursday, just yesterday, uh, Hillary Clinton was at uh, SNHU, Southern New Hampshire University, for a Women's Economic Opportunity Summit. Megan covered the appearance uh, in which the candidate talked about a lot of domestic issues, but also some foreign policy uh, points. Uh, so Megan, outline a little bit uh, what, what Hillary Clinton was, was talking about. So the scheduled program was a little more consistent with um, the the name of the event. Clinton was supposed to spend most of of her talk on um, women's economic opportunities, you know, issues like raising the minimum wage, um, lending to small businesses, um, and and trying in doing that to boost women-owned businesses. Um, Paid family leave and, um, and paid maternity leave were also issues that she advocated for, um, but she spent, you know, in light of some recent events, she spent some time talking about um, other issues as well. She opened with some comments on gun control and again called for stricter um, regulations on on gun control um, in light of of the shootings in California this week. Um, And she discussed a little bit of of foreign policy uh, at the prompting of a questioner who asked about her thoughts on Syria um, and and uh, the civil war there. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the uh, those San Bernardino shootings, which I believe uh, not, fourteen people were killed, um, and you know we're still getting information out about those. You know that's you know brought gun control you know once again back into the into the spotlight for the the candidates, and it's a, that's a real issue of distinction too on the Democratic side between, or at least Hillary Clinton would like it to be between her and Bernie Sanders, who has been a little more, um, some would say, pro gun in his in his stances in the Senate. We even saw that at the Jefferson 
Jefferson Jackson dinner earlier this week on Sunday night. All three Democratic candidates um, spoke at a fundraiser for the state party, and um, you know where both Clinton and former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley called for stricter gun regulations, um, and at the time um, referenced what was then the latest shooting. Planned Parenthood Clinic in Colorado, um, where Bernie Sanders was noticeably silent on the issue of gun control. He, he mentioned Planned Parenthood and, um, and discussed that briefly, but, but didn't link it to a call for greater uh, regulation of gun control or, or background checks or anything like that. You know, John, it's an interesting thing about Bernie Sanders, which is that he doesn't, hasn't really shown himself to be the most flexible candidate in the world. I think we've seen this before when um, you had the um, the Paris bombings, and there was a Democratic debate. You know, just basically the day after that, there were opening statements. You know, Bernie Sanders didn't want to change his opening statement beyond the addition of a couple of sentences. You know, here you have you know these recent shootings in the United States. You know, he doesn't want to talk about gun control particularly. You think this is this is a problem for him, or is is this just him concentrating on what he thinks he does best? Depends on what you like in a politician. I think you know there are some who uh, don't like politicians who change their opinion based on current events or whatever people want to hear. They, they like politicians who have a set of convictions and stand by them. So you could argue that that's Bernie Sanders, or you could say he's a stick in the mud who doesn't, who doesn't, who, who doesn't change his positions when he should. So it depends on what type of, you know, if you want a, a politician who is more fluid on the issues or someone who is, you know, I've I've been around long enough to know how I feel about these things, and and I don't I would say Sanders is I wouldn't necessarily call him pro gun. I think he's he's expressed himself as more pro Second Amendment, and mm-hmm. he has he has laid that out because he's a senator from Vermont, it's a rural state. The Second Amendment and hunting and owning guns is quite a big thing in Vermont. It's right next door to us, and so it's a big thing in New Hampshire too. And and so he has he has generally said that a one-size-fits-all gun policy for the country doesn't necessarily work. You have very different factors at play in urban environments versus rural rural environments. Which I think, to be fair, is how a lot of people say that ultimately the the gun control debate breaks down in the United States. And one of the reasons why it's been so difficult to have legislation passed, particularly out of the House, where you have a majority of members basically from rural districts um, where the, the view of guns and what they mean and what they do is, is, again, as you said, far different from people who are from urban districts or, or cities. Um, you know, kind of staying on the Democratic side, Megan, you mentioned the Jefferson Jackson dinner for the state Democrats. That was uh, on Sunday in Manchester. More than 1,400 uh, folks showed up to support their, their various uh various candidates. Uh, at this point, uh, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Martin O'Malley are the only ones running, um, at least on any kind of, of scale. You know, what did you hear about various approaches the candidates might take? What did you hear from the voters in terms of, you know, kind of what was important to them? Well, I talked to a lot of voters, both outside and inside the event. Um, there was a pretty strong contingent of, of uh, Bernie Sanders fans outside up until the last minute, um, and they you know, they had, you know, 
a lot of similar um, points about Bernie Sanders. They liked that one candidate said, you know, he liked that he didn't rely on, you know, what he called heavy money, big donations, corporate donations. They liked that he um, has promised to be tough on Wall Street, that they see that he, they feel that he can follow through on that. Um, you know, that was a, a common theme among the supporters for Sanders who were outside the event. They were even chanting, um, uh, super PACs need to go outside. And inside, there was a good mix of people. I think the the loudest presence was definitely the Hillary Clinton camp. Um, uh, it helped that they had thunder sticks with them. <laughs> but um, many of the supporters for Hillary who were there, you know, really looked at her experience in politics as what you know won them over. They said they wanted to see a candidate who, you know, had had bar none what they appeared. What they what they felt was the most experience um, in all all different sorts of um, political arenas. Boy, I mean, it sounds so different when you hear that from the Democratic side to what we've been hearing out of the Republican side now. You know, on the Republican side now, it's it's almost anti-experience in every in every respect. But to hear hear the hear voters actually emphasizing experience, emphasizing a background, you know, that's. That's really different. I mean, it's it's traditionally not different. It's traditionally something that that uh, would be voters would talk about. But you know, this cycle, it's interesting to hear that. Yeah, it's interesting as well that you know, Bernie Sanders is someone who's been in politics for a long time, but he's trying to cast himself as a little bit more of an outsider in comparison to Hillary Clinton. Um, and then you've got Martin O'Malley, whose whose supporters also point to his long, you know. Well, not, not long compared to the others, but his career as the governor of Maryland and the things he accomplished there, that was something I heard from his smaller but present group of supporters um, at the JJ dinner. So it is the, the different levels of experience on the Democratic side, I think, are playing in in a way that you don't, you don't see voters favoring on the Republican side. John, just in general, looking at the at the Democratic side right now, it feels like there hasn't been um, a lot of drama there necessarily, at least in the last last couple of weeks. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton, who was behind uh, Bernie Sanders, and at least in some state polls a month or two ago, has at least pulled even with him or pulled ahead in some cases. Um, do you do you think that do you think that there's still do you think that there's still a part of that race that's up in the air, or is or is Hillary basically put it away at this point? Um, as if the votes actually matter in this thing. <laughs> let's let's assume that they do for a minute. Um, Megan and I were talking before she went to Hillary event yesterday that she is still lagging behind Bernie Sanders and in, in young voters. So nationally. It's about two to one. Um, this is people in the 18 to 34 bracket. Nationally, uh, Bernie has about two to one support in that in that demographic. In New Hampshire, it's actually three to one um, in favor of Bernie Sanders. Among the youngest voters. Yes. So uh, the latest Granite State poll had... Uh, 18 to 34 year old likely Democratic voters, 57% uh, favored Bernie as opposed to 17% for Hillary Clinton. So um, 
that's a strong number for Bernie, right? Mm-hmm. But historically, the young voters aren't the ones that flood to the polls like older voters. And that's where the, the trend is almost exactly reversed for Hillary Clinton. So, you know, if Bernie has a, has a chance in, in, in the primaries, um, it will be um, if he can mobilize young voters. If they don't show up, then Hillary's got this thing all the way to the bank. Oh, go ahead, Megan. I found interesting at that event. Um, I talked with a young volunteer for the Clinton campaign, who was a student from Union College in New York. She was here with um, a class of students uh, and a professor, and they were having they were doing like a three week immersion in New Hampshire politics. And um, she was one of four volunteers from the class on the Clinton campaign, and. There were five volunteers from the class on the Sanders campaign, so they were a little more split than that national figure that, than that John just threw out. And um, you know, I, she was the only student I met from the class, and I don't know their their reasons for supporting those particular candidates. But I found it interesting that um, that when they you know had to choose campaigns to volunteer with and and candidates to follow around, that that was a, a very close split among that class. And yeah. there were far more Democrats among that group of, of students than there were Republicans. There were uh, two each working for Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush, one working for Rand Paul. Well, though, of course, generally, I think the, the party split for young people kind of remains lopsided in favor of Democrats across the, across the country. But, you know, again, as John says, it all comes down to turnout. And, you know, for, for, you know, both in the primary, in which case, you know, Bernie Sanders would be the person who would probably benefit if a more young voters turned out. And then in the general election, you know, nearly a year away, maybe 11 months away from now, in which case, uh, you know, the, for, the fortunes of the Democratic Party could well depend on how many young voters uh, came out to the polls. So turning to the GOP now for a, a bit. You know, it's 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 still amazing to say, but party front runner Donald Trump, and it's 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 hard to give him any other title than that. The, uh, Donald Trump uh, campaigned at the White Mountain Athletic Club in Waterville Valley on Tuesday. Um, the, the first ice storm of the season was that day, but his fans still showed up. Um, and we tried to, in our coverage of, of the Trump event, we tried to learn a little bit more about the, the Trump supporters, the, the people that, that really felt like he, he has the key for the direction of the country. So, John, what did we find out about them? Well, it's interesting, Clay. On Monday mornings here in the newsroom, we sit around the table, myself and the reporters, and we talk about the political events of the week. And we were, we were talking about various things on Monday morning, but the one topic that we spent the most time on was was trying to figure out who this base of support was for Donald Trump. And we decided one of our stories would be like a profile of the anatomy of a Trump supporter. Who are these people? Middle-aged men, business owners, distrustful of government, you know, you could throw out your, your different cliches. So when Ella had a chance to cover this event. That's when we're like, well, why don't we why don't we give that a shot? Why don't we give that a try? See if she can nail down who give us some examples of Trump supporters. So she went to the crowd. She talked to a lot of different people, and she, you know, she found a lot of Trump supporters. And I think sometimes we forget 
because there are a lot of issues. There's a lot of things going on in the world. But consistently, the number one issue for voters in America, people in America, economy and jobs. Okay? Mm -hmm. So here you got billionaire Donald Trump. And there are people that their number one issue, economy and jobs, and they look to Trump as a savior for the economy and getting better jobs because there's many people in this country that have not recovered from the recession, that are barely getting enough by. And so that's, those are the people that usually, you know, they, he's pulling from a Democratic base, you know. It's this, this angry middle class mm-hmm. that are fed up with politics as usual, a broken Congress, and they want some results. And look, they see Donald Trump, a man who gets results. And so he may say all these wild and crazy things, but he definitely has a considerable appeal. So much so that the Republican Party has been trying to figure out what are the consequences if Donald Trump becomes the nominee. Yep. Something that you're familiar with. You read the memo. Well, I, I looked at it. Yeah, I mean, there was a Republican strategist uh, for, I believe, the Republican senatorial campaign uh, committee. Um you know, supporting various Republicans running in U.S. Senate races across the country. And he put out a six-page memo basically outlining strategy for the party if Donald Trump becomes the GOP nominee. And what's interesting about the memo is that it walks a really uh, careful line. You know, on one hand, it it says, you know, we really should be mindful about what Trump represents, why voters like him. The, the person writing the memo seems to suggest that You know, people appreciate kind of the unvarnished, unpolitically correct approach, the idea that we need to, to, uh, you know, kind of uproot, you know, take take out the, you know, don't just cut down the tree, but pull up the stump from the roots uh, is a a phrase, an expression he uses over and over. Um, So, you know, take that reformist impulse, understand that reformist impulse, and yet, this is the big and yet, find a way to distance yourself enough from Donald Trump so that you, as the senatorial Senate candidate, are not always having to answer for comments or statements that he makes. Um, in other words, you're running your own race. You know, you should set your own terms and your, your own agenda in, in, in running a campaign. So it's, it's a very interesting, interesting memo in, in that sense. Um, and, you know, I think it, the real question remains to be seen is whether if Trump continues to be a front runner, you know, these U.S. Senate campaigns are going to be happening simultaneously. Even if he isn't the nominee, he's going to be the front runner while at least some of these campaigns are going on. So I was just telling John, it'll be interesting to see in, you know, looking at, let's say, Kelly Ayotte's re-election campaign here in New Hampshire. Does she actually take some of the advice of this consultant? Does she actually, do you actually begin to see certain approaches in her campaign that are that are recommended in this memo. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, which are and also just like emphasizing reform, emphasizing that you're going to go out and, you know, change things from the from the bottom to the top um, and also really emphasizing, you know, connections to people at the, the ground level. Um, you know, the, the the strategist also suggests, you know, if you do a factory tour, make sure that you use a machine. Have, have them take pictures of you, you know, or video footage of you, like, actually using machine or do, doing something, which, 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 frankly, to me, sounds like a strategy that could backfire rather spectacularly for, for some candidates. But <laughs> we'll see. If you use an unwieldy machine or are not properly prepared to, to use it. Are, so. you, are you evoking Dukakis <laughs> with his tank helmet? 
Well, there's there's just always, um, you know, you can always talk about, about various things. You know, Dukakis with the tank helmet, John Kerry uh, in his, um, uh, oh, in his kind of medical suit garb when he was visiting, I think, a weapons facility of some sort. There's there's always the potential for looking silly mm -hmm. when you're getting down and dirty in, in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. Megan, any other thoughts about Donald Trump? Did you manage to find any Clinton supporters who were also thinking seriously about voting for Donald Trump? You know what? I did talk to one guy from the Boston area who said he was um, uh, still undecided as a voter. He really liked... He liked Hillary because he had liked Bill Clinton um, back in the day. And when I asked him which other candidates he was thinking about, he said, oh, probably Donald Trump. And I was, a, you know, a little surprised, asked him, you know, why, as they seem so completely opposite in everything that they stand for. And he, um, he didn't really have much of an explanation for that, but he seemed to be drawn to two candidates that have a good amount of, of name recognition and a good amount of, honestly, star power between the two of them, uh, which I thought was was pretty interesting. I did also meet um, uh, his friend. The two of them were up from Boston together, uh, a young man who was a registered Republican but came out to see Hillary because he said if, if the ticket in the general election did come down to um, Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, he wanted to be able to make that decision in an informed way. So I uh, found that interesting and, and uh, wonder if that's indeed what he'll be deciding. It is important to note, though, that the number crunchers at 538.com, Nate Silver and company, continue to insist that the chance of Donald Trump uh, winning the Republican nomination is very small. At this point, you know, the, the number that Nate Silver is put, put, saying was, you know, maybe maybe 7%. So in other words, not impossible, but his feeling was given that there are so many factors in the party itself that are arrayed against him. You know, the party itself clearly doesn't, you know, and most of the people in the party do not like him, um, that, there, that there will be a way found somehow to deny him the nomination. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Certainly what's, what's interesting is that, you know, each of the times you've had a candidate that has seemed to be ready to make a play for the, that top spot. They've they have they have not gathered steam. You know, you had Ben Carson come up a bit, but then he kind of fumbled foreign policy questions and has fallen behind again. Everyone was talking about Marco Rubio a month or two ago, and I mean he's continued to to run a steady campaign, but has has not surged in any way. So the the question becomes, you know, who is it going to be? Who's going to be the main anti anti Trump challenger? Some people are suggesting Ted Cruz, who I guess is leading in Iowa right now. So, um, but then uh, John, in, in uh, talking about other Republicans, you also wanted us to, to note this week that between our last podcast and this one, um, the state's uh, largest and certainly most conservative newspaper, the Union Leader, has made its endorsement in the Republican primary. They sure did. And who did they endorse? That'd be their man, Chris Christie. Um, I, uh, I, I guess in hindsight, it's not that surprising, but you know, it was, it was, it was out, you know, like he's not one of their, one of the front runners, but, uh, they came out and they endorsed him, thought he's the man for the job. They did it early. Um, you know, it did get a lot of notice and then Christy came here right afterwards and, 
You know, he was he was full of vigor and and tried to capitalize on that. Um, interestingly, too, the two candidates that have visited New Hampshire the most, and there's a there's another story I think we floated in here since the last time we met, which I'll touch on. But the two candidates that have been in New Hampshire the most, Lindsey Graham, Chris Christie. How how are they doing in the polls? In New Hampshire compared to all the other candidates and the answer is not that great and so there's this long tradition in New Hampshire that you know you have to shake a voter's hand three times a presidential candidate has to shake a voter's hand three times before you can get their support you know you've got to be here you've got to do shoe leather campaigning door-to-door you know, -door, house parties there is a there is a map a, a handbook of how to win the New Hampshire primary this primary seems to be completely different. The candidates that aren't coming here a lot, the ones you mentioned, Trump, Carson, just like the national polls, they're leading here in New Hampshire. And so we did, uh, we did a story posing the question of, is, is the primary dead, the, the, the mythical New Hampshire primary in its 100th year, as, has the way to win the New Hampshire primary changed irrevocably to the point where what we think is the primary is no longer the primary. Mm -hmm. Remains to be seen. Can a guy like Chris Christie, with the union leader's endorsement in his back pocket, now surge ahead with the second most campaign visits in New Hampshire, can he surge ahead and maybe win here, beat Trump? Remains to be seen. On the Democratic side of that, too, Martin O'Malley is the candidate of the three that has... has with a good margin, made the most visits in New Hampshire mm -hmm. and taken the most campaign stops, um, has put a lot of attention here and has gained some good endorsements from party figures, in particular folks who supported Barack Obama in, in 2008. Um, so that's, that's another one where he continues to be quite far behind in the polls and doesn't really show, there's no indication that he will surge but well, and I, I think I've I've talked about this before, maybe not on the podcast, but certainly to other folks in the newsroom here about just the fact that New Hampshire has a very has traditionally had a very unique political culture in the sense that it has had, you know, quite moderate to liberal even Republicans. And, um, you know, because the Republican Party was the dominant party here for for so long that you had an incredible diversity of ideological belief within that, that one party. And that's part of what made New Hampshire so unusual was that, you know, you'd have, you know, you'd have uh, Republican governors who were, you know, maybe not exactly liberal, but certainly you'd have some, you'd have a lot of pro-choice Republicans. Um, you still do, actually. Um, and, and yet, you know, I think if you look back over the last five, six, seven years here in New Hampshire, kind of that, that ideological heterogeneity, as it were, within the parties has has definitely changed. You know, I think the Republicans in New Hampshire are, are more conservative as a group probably than they used to be. And the Democrats are a little more liberal. And I think that's a pattern that you've seen, a, you know, in the parties across the country. And it has happened here too. And as that happens, I think the value of like those those face-to-face -face meetings with the candidates is perhaps less important because you know, you're, you're not talking to, a, to an electorate that's significantly different from the rest of the country. We will see. We shall. 
Um, I, I do think there's certainly the possibility that if someone like Chris Christie even makes it to second place in New Hampshire, even if he could surge up to, to second place, that could really give his, his candidacy a, a huge shot in the arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, is there any, anything else this week? Anything I'm... You always have something. It feels like there is something. It does. Doesn't it? Megan? No. <laughs> what might that be? No, like, I think we covered everything that happened this week. Well, politically, yeah, sure. What about the, uh, what about the, the task force? When did the task force meet? The task force has been meeting... And uh, they've got a number of bills. This would be the legislative task force uh, that's looking at ways to fight the uh, opioid epidemic here in New Hampshire. Yes. Uh, Early indications, the legislation that they have, you know, they want to give some more money to law enforcement, um, you know, potentially create a needle exchange, do, you know, seemingly good things, right? But not all the legislation is completely in sync with what the advocates and the people working in the field uh, have recommended. You know, they, they really see a need for more treatment in New Hampshire and more recovery centers to essentially help people stay clean after they, after they come out of treatment. And so the, the bills that we're talking about don't, don't increase that capacity uh, by a large margin. So it's looking now that the legislation that they're they're looking at kind of nibbles around the edges. It doesn't really strike at the heart of the issue. Um, you know, a term that's been kick, kicked around is arresting our way out of the problem. People say you can't arrest your way out of the problem. But on the other hand, you know, police are often the first responders in, in these in a lot of different ways, whether it's an overdose or a, a shoplifting arrest. Many times a driver to that shoplifting arrest is a drug addiction. So they have a couple more weeks of work, and some of the bills are going to trickle over into the next legislation, le- legislative session. Well, there's also just the question of how much money they'll have to spend, Yeah, which, which we don't entirely know yet. But, and whether New Hampshire can tap into its, its alcohol fund. We are in the alcohol sales business in New Hampshire, and so if you could take a portion of those sales and dedicate it to this issue, that would be fine. Um, I was recently at a presentation, and, and uh, the statistic was put up like uh, 75% of people who try heroin started, their addiction started with prescription drugs. And so there's also an effort to uh, curb the prescribing practices um, or change the pro- prescribing practices to kind of limit the over-prescription of narcotics in New Hampshire. And uh, last but not least, for me, it's like, okay, the big drug companies, right? If we want to get tough on drug addiction, how about the the drug companies that pump billion dollars into elections to both sides to make sure that nobody passes any legislation which would curb the absolutely absurd amount of addictive drugs they're pumping into our country. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's and, you know, and there was actually at one point a. Um, you what do you think know, about that, Megan? At, at one point, there was actually. I always a, agree with everything you say. Okay. There was, um, you know, real attention being paid to 
um, you know, the companies that, pres that, that created these prescription opioids and particularly some of these pain management centers that were actually underwritten by some of these, these drug companies essentially to prescribe these drugs in, in great amounts. You know, a, a lot of those practices have been curbed by this point, but that's actually what is now feeding the heroin side of the epidemic is because it's more difficult to access, you know, oxycodone and some of these other prescription medications. So people are turning to heroin. There's also a decision made, I guess, by some drug cartels to basically dramatically cut the cost of heroin because they saw that there was this giant market. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really a perfect storm of, 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 of problems. But on that cheery note, I guess this week, John and Megan, thank you for coming in. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Clay. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast series through iTunes or Stitcher. And for all of the latest political coverage, go to politics.conqueredmonitor.com. We'll see you next week.